Hey Waves listeners, this week we're bringing you something special. It's an episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Love Letters. Love Letters tells stories about romance, marriage, partnership, sex, loss, and the human heart, served with a side of advice. On the new season, host Meredith Goldstein explores all the ways money plays into love, dating, and relationships. Like, what happens when two partners come from different wealth backgrounds? Or who should pay for drinks on a first date? In this episode, Meredith asks, how do couples decide whose turn it is to pursue a career dream? She talks to two women about how they balance their goals and desires with those of their partners. I think you're going to like this one. Here comes the episode. You can find Love Letters wherever you get your podcasts. You know how some couples have that one thing, that when it comes up, it always seems to spark a little fight? My colleague Kara Baskin and her husband Brian have one of those things. It goes something like this. You see, Kara is a very in-demand freelance writer and makes a good living doing it. She writes about a lot of stuff for the Boston Globe and other outlets, mostly stories about food and parenting and culture. But she would love to prioritize a book she's writing about women and middle age. Brian encourages her to do exactly that. Brian was, you need to do this. Think of this as a long-term investment in your career. Like you might have to take a pay cut for nine months or whatever, but think of it as something that will benefit you in the long term. To Kara, this is pure fantasy. She's looking at the mortgage payments, the summer camp tuition, the college savings, and she's thinking, how can I possibly give up any income at all? When Brian says that to you, I want to ask the uncomfortable question. Are you sure. like, dude, get a job that pays more? Yeah, sure. Like, do you say it? Yeah. How do you say it? Like that. And what does he say? Here's what he says. Then you should have fucking married a dentist. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Part of why I wanted to do a season about money is that it is such a difficult thing for couples to navigate. Even healthy, loving, been-at-this-a-long-time kind of couples. Kara and her husband Brian fall into that camp. They've been together for almost 25 years. They have a couple of kids. Kara says they share values on just about everything. By almost any measure, they're doing pretty well. And yet, it's still hard. On today's episode, you'll hear from two people— Kara, and another married person, about what it can look like to share. As I mentioned on that season preview episode with Bob, my financial advisor, the concept of sharing is something that has always scared me about romantic partnership. How do people combine finances, lives, priorities without losing out or getting resentful? How do people forego their own desires in life to let a partner thrive? That feels really daunting to me. But today's stories help me figure out how it can work. It turns out that while you cannot have it all, all of the time, you can have a lot by giving and noticing what people are offering in return. 
So today, a story about partnership and compromise, told in two acts. I'm going to start with Kara and Brian, who live near Boston with their two children, who are 12 and 6. I first met Kara years ago at a friend's party. We're about the same age, mid-40s. I bet if you looked at our contacts, we'd have a lot of the same people. Talk a little bit about what you write about for The Globe and other places. Sure. So I write a weekly parenting column. The name of the column is Parenting Unfiltered, so it's not like the aspirational, glossy parenting stuff. It's like, what if you're a mom and you drink five glasses of wine every night? Or how do you balance your budget when you need to pay for college and summer camp and daycare? And what does perimenopause look like? And sort of all of the dirty, gritty things that come along with being a parent. And also, I think it's geared, you know, mainly toward women. And I also write about food. As much as she enjoys doing all that, Kara is also trying to finish this ambitious book. The working title is Generation Yes, The Modern Woman's Field Guide to Midlife. For Kara, it often feels more like Generation No Way because it's so difficult to dedicate time to a passion project when you're a working middle-aged parent. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about Kara's background. She grew up in a middle-class household in Acton, Massachusetts, a little ways northwest of Boston. Her father was an attorney for the government. Her mother stayed home with Kara and her brother. Kara's parents had been high school sweethearts. That influenced her own thinking about partnership and romance. I kind of thought that was the model, and that's what people did. You're like a lobster who mates for life, like the first person you meet. So I, that's all I knew. And I really liked stability, and I was not into dating a lot of people. I had enough going on in my own head that I just wanted, like, check that box. So when Kara gets a boyfriend her junior year of high school, she's like, okay, cool. I'm all set. And he ended up breaking up with me on Valentine's Day of our sophomore year of college at my Hotmail email account. And not even my primary Hotmail account, Meredith. It was my secondary Hotmail account. It takes a while to get over being Hotmail dumped. But Kara eventually starts dating again. About a year later, as a junior at Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts, she meets Brian through a friend in her dorm. Brian is a student at UMass Amherst, just up the road. I was dating someone else at the time, but it, like I knew that it wasn't going to last. And we went to this party, and literally he opened the door, and I was expecting kind of this like beefy frat guy. And he opened the door, and I was like, Oh, he has the same birthday as me. Instantly, I knew that we had the same birthday. I sound like a crazy horoscope person, but he, I knew. And I was right. I, the first thing I said to him was, were you born on January 12th? You do sound like a crazy horoscope I know. person. I, I mean, kind of not, am, but... Which I say with no, I mean, I... I <laughs> feel so judged. As no, a cancer, just... I feel very sensitive about the whole thing. Right. But Well, I'm a Capricorn and I'm very practical. So this would not be my style. But so... I knew, I knew, 100% knew. So he says, yes, I am also a Capricorn. Correct. Then what? So I was ethical, and I was dating someone else, but I thought he was very cute. This was the week before spring break. I flew to London to visit a friend, and I remember telling my friend who I went with, I think I've met this guy who I'm, like, I'm going to dump this other guy and date. You know, like, this is how it's going to happen. And that's what happened. 
I literally broke up with this other guy as soon as I flew home from London and started dating Brian. He was a sophomore. I was a junior when we met. So by the time you graduate, you've been together... Like a year. Okay. A a year and change, yeah. So talk me through graduation and the plan after. Okay. So that's where things get dicey. Brian is doing an engineering program at UMass, but he doesn't love it. He's feeling a little adrift. And so when Kara gets a job at NBC News in Washington after graduation, he decides, what the hell, I'll just come with you. Kara feels great about this. It's like her adult life is starting. She's got that serious partner she always thought she'd have. So you move to D.C., what's his plan? I'm trying to remember what the plan was. I mean, it wasn't like he had another college that he was going to transfer to or a job lined up. It was all me. I had the job lined up, and he was coming with me, and we figured we'd figure it out when we got there. Kara's parents, they don't feel so great about this. Brian is, like, very put together and, like, normal. Like, he looks like any suburban dad. Like not- he, look, he looks like he could balance my budget do my taxes yeah and and i mean that as a he's very stable and like very cute and people are like oh he's so nice like he's great but in college he was called shaggy like shaggy from scooby-doo because he had the hair and he was very tall and lanky and he looked like shaggy i remember my mother being like we didn't send you to mount holyoke to have this happen like she was woebegone like she was rending her garments she was worried that he was not polished and that sounds very shallow and maybe in some ways was. And she came to really love Brian and see what a great guy. But like at first impression, he was not like vineyard vines, popped collar. Like he just didn't present that way. Pretty soon, though, Brian proves the doubters wrong. He gets a job as a marketing manager at the Environmental Protection Agency, which pays pretty well for someone who hasn't graduated college. He goes on to finish his undergrad degree at George Mason University in Virginia. Kara and Brian get married in 2006 and make a big move the next year. They relocate to the Boston area for Brian to get his MBA. Maybe you both decided you'd be here at some point, but you're here for his thing. Yeah, and our families live here. And our, Yeah, so like, how did it change sort of the dynamics when his thing was his thing as opposed to him finding a thing around your thing? Um, it quickly became my thing again, because <laughs> which is sort of the theme. Kara gets a part-time job at the Boston Phoenix, the city's beloved alternative weekly newspaper at the time. May it rest in peace forever. Even though Kara and Brian have come to Boston ostensibly for his MBA program, it's Kara's career that begins to blossom. She gets a gig editing a magazine. She's working on book projects. Her freelance career begins to take off. And then a bunch of stuff happens around that time. Brian graduates at the height of the recession in 2009, when jobs are scarce. Kara's magazine gets canceled. They have their first child in 2010. They spend several years trying to buy a house. Kara is feeling fortunate that her parents had been able to pay for college, so no student loans. But she's also becoming more aware of how big a role family wealth plays into some people's ability to buy houses and to not have to work all the time, especially people in creative fields. I wasn't, like, at a disadvantage 
but I didn't have someone saying like, oh, here's your down payment. We did it all ourselves, and I felt very tired. And I felt like, when will it get easier? If I'm reading LinkedIn and scrolling along and following various writers about their process, and I see something that obviously took some amount of flexibility and probably money to do, I begin to worry, like, oh, if only I had that. And it's probably, it's like a little bit of self-sabotage, you know? And I realize that it's probably wrong. It's not healthy. But I do wish people were just more open about money and, like, what it takes to have choices. Choices are a privilege. They're a financial privilege. After getting his recession-era MBA, Brian does finally land a job doing business development for an energy management startup. Then he becomes director of sales at a different startup, a job he still has. He makes a good salary. Could he make a lot more with that MBA? I'm sure he could, but he likes his job. Plus, his schedule is flexible enough that he can walk the kids to school and coach soccer. He's the more hands-on parent. He's probably, like, the better in some ways parent. Like, he's the one who makes dinner every night. He's the one who does, like, a lot of the household stuff. He's the one who keeps everything stable when I'm, like, spiraling into whatever anxiety problem I'm having. Kara, meanwhile, had ghostwritten books and co-authored books in the past, but never done one of her own. Then she gets this idea for a book about women and middle age. She writes a proposal, and it sells. She is super excited about this. There's just one problem. When is she supposed to write it? I had built up a business of my own. I had been doing very well, and I had been out-earning Brian. I mean, not by a ton, but, like, by enough. And, like, you know, like, that's hard to do as a writer to, like, make a... Not like I'm making a lot of money, but like I was doing well. And I was so afraid that I was going to have to throw most of that away to work on this book, which was my dream, but also really, really upend my own sense of security, economic security, financial security. And this brings us back to the dentist conversations. Kara says to Brian, if you could make more money, I could have more creative freedom. And Brian's like, dude, give me a break. At this point, we almost don't talk about it because it only leads to a fight. You're saying center me, do the emotional labor. He does a lot of it. Do the child care. He but does it. Also, can you go back to the tradition of making more money than me? I want it all, Meredith. <laughs> I want it all. Kara is the first to say she knows she has a pretty good, all things considered. Their joint household income is many rungs above the median income of Greater Boston. Their house, which they bought for $580,000 a decade ago, is now worth twice that. Most importantly, if she's being honest, she does have a partner who believes in her and stands by her. With apologies to MasterCard, that is priceless. I think that one thing that, for me, has made my work possible is that he has been so supportive and given me all the space that I need to do that. And if I had to, I'd love to have both, right? I'd love to have like a bottomless pit of money and all the emotional support in the world. But the most important thing is the emotional support. So that's what I would say the couple should prioritize. What is the most ridiculous thing you and Brian have ever bought that wasn't useful, that was... Nothing. We're Capricorns, Meredith. <laughs> um, never a big vacation, never a big... Oh. TV thing. Do you want to hear something actually super crazy? Yeah. 
poor Brian. Um, he had a guy's golf trip planned, and I was having a like personal moment of crisis. And he like because he's such a good guy and he deserves a lot of credit. He swallowed the amount. He it was like thousands of dollars down the drain, and he stayed home with me because I needed him. And I wouldn't say he bought something, but he lost several thousands of dollars that he could not get back to be there for me. And Dennis wouldn't do that. No, he wouldn't. They'd be like, I gotta go fix that tough. I gotta go, you know, put on someone's braces. Thank you so much, Kara, for sharing your story. I am so happy to be here and I love to overshare my stories. When we come back, we'll travel to Hawaii. We'll talk to someone who has a lot of experience with these family and financial pressures in her professional practice and in her own life. That's after the break. Okay, we're back. So the particulars of Kara's story may be unique to her, but I think the underlying pressures and points of tension are pretty universal. Talking to her got me thinking about couples of all kinds, and this idea of whose turn it is, whose job or family responsibility determines where to live, who gets to go back to school, and who has to be the one working extra hours to pay the bills, who does the child care, who gets the green light to start their cute little Main Street cinnamon roll shop, or a European pastry stand, if I'm calling back to another episode. The point is, these are big questions that partners everywhere confront every day. So I wanted to bring in an expert who tries to help families and couples answer them. Shade Soares is a psychologist and financial therapist in Oahu, Hawaii. She's in her mid-30s. I know it's cliche, and maybe it was a cold day in Boston when we spoke, but I had to start by asking Shade, what is it like to live in Hawaii? You know, I'm a girl from the Caribbean. I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. And this is the closest I'm going to feel like home in the U.S. I can walk to the beach. I can walk to the mountains. Um, you know, if I drive 30 minutes, I can feel like I'm in the jungle. And I just love that I get all of those different environments. It allows me to feel like I'm connected to this place in a deeper way. Shade and her husband, Abel, have built a practice they call Huimalama Advisors. They combine financial planning and accounting work with counseling and life coaching. We realized that for him, trying to get people to stick to financial plans and just recognizing that there was so much emotional and psychological issues related to finances for folks. And for me, just realizing that finances were a huge part of um, people's mental health, causing a lot of anxiety and depression. And so we decided that it might be good to put our resources together and develop something that can really help people to get the best of both worlds. Shade comes at her work bearing a lot of experience with this stuff in her own life. She moved to New York from Trinidad and Tobago when she was around nine years old. She was raised by a single mom who prioritized education and letting her kids enjoy being kids. Sometimes Shade's mother would give her a little spending money to buy things she wanted. One of my earliest memories of money, I remember just being so excited. I think I was about 14 or 15 years old. 
And I wanted to get this designer pair of jeans that I'd heard about. And I remember getting it just for the sake of it being designer and just because I thought my friends would think it's cool. And I just remember really hating it when I went home and tried it on and saw the way it looked on me. And I didn't like jeans. I was always much more of like a dress and skirt kind of person. And so I just thought about like, why did you do this? Why did you go spend this money this way? And I think those early experiences, seeing her sacrifices, recognizing kind of how I splurged money on something that really wasn't even valuable to me and thinking about that and sort of moving into adulthood really made me just think about more and more, how do we spend money? What's behind things that we say we value? Shadi joins the Army Reserves at 17, toward the end of high school. She goes to West Point and commissions as a human resource officer. She deploys to Kuwait for 15 months. Afterward, in 2012, she gets assigned to Boise, Idaho, to help process new recruits into the Army. In all the places in the world where I never thought I would meet someone coming from a big city like New York to a much smaller town like Boise, Idaho, um, that's where I met my spouse. Shade meets Abel on Match.com. She's not really looking for a romantic partner. She just wants to date and meet new people. I actually took him to a work meeting for our first date. This poor Wait, man. What? <laughs> Well, you know, I felt like that was safe. I'm around colleagues, and I know. But was it like at a restaurant, or it was, was it in your? Okay, it was at a okay. <laughs> so we, you know, um, that's that was our first date, and we've been together ever since. So, how long did it take before you were like, okay, we're a couple? building something. Not long. We got married 11 months after we met. And this is where that familiar dance begins. The dance of two people in love, but with their own professional goals, trying to move through life in tandem. When they get married in 2013, Abel is already doing tax and accounting work. He was on his way to getting his CPA license, which was like on the track to becoming a partner in his firm. And he had his life plan for him. He'd the house he lived in, he'd purchased. He's a very, you know, he's a financial guy, very structured. And I think for him, he'd always seen himself as I will be the breadwinner, you know, my career will be priority. Shade says, well, actually, hold my beer for a minute. She already knows she wants to pursue psychology as a career which means she'll need to get her PhD. And that means leaving Boise, Idaho. This sparks the first of many conversations between Shade and her husband as their new marriage takes shape. They set this precedent early on for being very open with each other about what they want in life. Shade says that's such an important practice as couples learn to navigate opportunities and limitations as a unit. At first, Shade is tempted by a PhD program at a big fancy school. But it would cost a lot of money, and it would mean taking on a ton of debt. And so we really talked about, do we want to take on this significant cost for your education? And that will limit our other financial goals. But I invited him into that decision making, and we decided I'll apply to actually a PhD program that's funded. 
and that aligns more with our life and our goals. And I got into that program. And when I got in, we then had another conversation about what is this going to look like for us? You know, and he agreed, like, I'll follow you. This will be your time. And he made his life more, his career a little bit more flexible. Abel follows Sade to Maryland, where she gets her PhD in psychology at a university there. He continues to work on his certifications for financial planning and accounting. Eventually, he gets a job in that area. They also have two kids during this period. And Abel is doing most of the childcare and housekeeping because he knows that's his role right now. That's what they've agreed on. When it comes time for Sade to choose where to do her internship and residency, she and Abel continue this open dialogue they'd established in the early days of their relationship. This is another time I invited him into the decision-making. I'm going to apply wherever it feels good to you. And so he traveled with me to all of the places that were our top five. And we went out and explored those cities together. And we got a feel for them. And, you know, we went out and ate. And, and we just got a sense of what it was like. This is when they land on Hawaii. A big draw is that Abel's father is Hawaiian and living in Oahu, along with a lot of Abel's relatives. They make the move in 2018. Would you have characterized it as a his-turn moment? Like, was there anything about that decision in your brain that was like, well, I went to Maryland and did my thing and this person was flexible? And like, how did that generosity affect your generosity? Oh, for sure. I think a big part of it, though, is I wanted this to be his turn, but I don't know if that he felt like it was his turn in the beginning as we were making this decision. I think he felt very conflicted initially about that return to home for lots of reasons, you know. But once we got here, and I think once he started like integrating again with the community and with his family, I think then we really were able to say, okay, now this is really your turn. It's more than just Sade agreeing to move to a place where her husband has roots. She starts to arrange her work schedule so that now she's the one who can be more flexible for the family. And it doesn't mean that like I didn't have to be places or have to work, but I was the one who was more willing to say, okay, if the kids are sick, I'm going to go pick them up. If you have meetings late at night, then that's what you need to do. If you need to work on the weekends, that's what you need to do. So it's, it really shifted sort of kind of naturally into it being his turn. It sounds less binary than I've always imagined it to be, <laughs> looking <laughs> yeah. at couples, and that it's not just, now it's your turn and I'm miserable and I'm sitting here while you do the thing that you want to do, that it's like all of these mini compromises. And, you know, I think when I say, like, it's his turn, it really, to me, it's about time. I think it, it really boils down to whose time is sort of prioritized right now. And that doesn't mean I don't get any of his time, right? And it doesn't mean he's not still the wonderful dad and family man. It just means that right now, we got to prioritize his time. We got to really put boundaries around his time because he it's, it's his turn to do all the things that he needs to, um, to do to feel that, you know, to feel really good about his life and to feel that he's meeting his personal goals as well. You mentioned that his sort of philosophy might have started one way, right? He's the breadwinner. He's mm -hmm. this, you know, some, some more traditional. And 
uh, vibes. And what you were describing is not that at all. It is a true equal partnership where everybody's needs and, and moments in a day are considered. And was there a moment where that became clear to him? Like, oh, I'm doing it a different way than I thought, and I like it. Lately, you know, he's been able to communicate, this isn't what I expected, but I wouldn't want it any other way, right? And so, and I think expectation versus like, well, maybe what he truly values is different. I think he truly values an egalitarian, equitable household. But I think his expectations, maybe, and where do expectations come from? Maybe societal expectations, maybe lots of other things that are speaking to folks were just different. He thought he wanted the jeans, but he didn't <laughs> want the jeans. I must say, like me. <laughs> In Oahu, Sade starts out doing clinical and consulting psychology. Abel is operating a tax and accounting business. Sade credits her husband with the idea of the two of them joining forces professionally. He's the one who kept coming to me and saying, you know, I'm really recognizing that I'm really struggling. You know, these people are paying me to create financial plans for them, to help them with this, and they're not able to maintain it. And as he kept coming and... You know, and he would try to pick my brain about, you know, habit forming and behavioral change and all of these things. And he just realized this is important. And, you know, so he asked, like, what do you think about us starting this together? Sade, who has always had an interest in entrepreneurship, says, let's do it. They now operate a practice that does financial planning, tax and accounting work, life and financial coaching and psychological services. They work with people in and around Oahu and in other parts of the country. Shade says that when this question of whose turn is it comes up with her clients, it's often from women who have prioritized their careers and feel guilty about it. There's a lot of guilt around, well, you know, I just work so much and like we just don't have a lot of time together and like I'm not doing that much in a household. And I, there's just a lot of guilt around um, the fact that it's their turn, because they're not framing it that way in a household, that they're not talking about it, and they're not able to have that conversation around what's actually happening in the relationship and really how they're actually, you know, instead of feeling guilty, you're supporting your household, right? You're doing all of these things because you see this vision and you have these goals for your household. Some might say that the minute kids are introduced, no matter how those kids come into the picture, that there's this, like, unspoken, it's clearly a one-sided labor situation when you have men and women specifically Mm -hmm. that, like, it's never going to be her turn again. (laughs) Right. Have you had to help couples in that situation sort of name what work is being done that might not have a number attached to it? The way I talk to folks about it is that I simply ask, like, okay, Who's um, babysitting on the weekends? <laughs> who's doing the laundry? Who's cooking the meals? Who's shopping for the household? Um, who's planning for the kids' events at school? Who's showing up for parent-teacher conferences? And I think when we start looking at time, again, I sort of say time for me is so significant, right? When we say time is money, well, time is value, Right. Time is how we can really identify, you know, the work that folks are putting in. 
And so when I start asking those questions, I think couples really start to really be able to look at at the picture and, and ask themselves, like, is this how we saw our household running? Is this the equity we saw that would be in our household? Does it have to be this way? Can it be another way? How do you deal with couples who have negotiated their way into resentment, where that mm-hmm. is what they're sitting with, of I didn't get to do this because you did this, and this was hard for me. And and when they come to you at that point, where they're already feeling like their negotiations and compromises left them with less than their partner, how do you help them out of that like bad feelings hole? Well, one, I, I do like to look into the past a little bit. And I, I just wonder, were those negotiations, like, did they negotiate from a space of um, where they were really saying the things they wanted and needed? Or did they negotiate from a space where maybe they were, you know, um, trying to protect the relationship or, or there were other factors? But I would also say sort of any negotiation on the things we want can sometimes lead to resentment too, right? Like, Anytime we feel like we have to give something up. So I encourage people to really look at themselves and what it is that they have right now. I think sometimes it's easy to stick in resentment instead of kind of being um, grateful. I encourage a lot of gratitude and and to share some of that. You know, I think the communication sometimes, even communication, like I feel like I missed out on something because of just this decision, just the sharing of that and that being met with understanding, with love and grace from your partner can be really helpful. Shade says that in these negotiations, it's important to see your own hopes and goals clearly and to see your partners too. That's what she feels like she and her husband have practiced and it's what she preaches to the people she works with. I think, you know, a successful partnership, the way you do it right is you start off by being yourself. Be real about what you want and be real about what you're open to in the beginning. I think when both people come in eyes fully open, understanding exactly who their partner is, I think that really paves the way. The way we treat ourselves, the way that we demonstrate to others that we value ourselves, that we value our time, that we value our goals is important. I think our partners pick up on that. Like, oh, she's going to go do this thing with or without me. Do I want to be in her life when she does it? And the same for when I was thinking about myself, like, okay, this man already owns owned a house when we met. This man said his goal is to go do this. He's going to do that with or without me. Do I want to be in his life? And the answer was yes. Thank you so much for telling us your story and giving us some advice. Thank you so much, Meredith, for having me. And snowflakes on our tongues Just two kids in love My valentine Two little busy bees Making time for you and me Everyone can see on my valentine Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Our marketing coordinator is Maggie Taylor. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. 
And if you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. And remember, we are an advice column. You can send your own letter to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. You know what perimenopause looks like? I'll take a good fucking look, baby. Actually, I don't know that to be true, but every now and then I'll have like a mood change or... But everything falls into the umbrella, Yeah, I'm like, well, that's that's what must... That must be what this is. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. That was a sneak peek at the new season of Love Letters from the Boston Globe. You can hear more stories about money and relationships by searching for Love Letters wherever you get your podcasts.